0: On Monday, July 27, 2020, I conducted a series of live streaming interviews to discuss voting rights, voter suppression, and the upcoming 2020 election. This was one of those interviews. In this episode, I'm speaking with Julie Lee Merseth. Julie Lee Merseth's interests are situated in the field of American political behavior with a dual overlapping focus on race and immigration. Her research is especially animated by the questions of how racial and ethnic politics in the United States are changing as a result of fast-growing populations of immigrants, largely from Latin America, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. Julie is going to be talking to us all now about language issues and the language provision in the vra so i'm gonna admit it right now hello julie we just hello (laughs) how are you wow look look at those glasses those glasses are amazing (laughs) thanks So uh, thank you for being here. I was worried for one split second that I, I got the, because you're in a different time zone than me, correct? Right, you're right. Okay, but you're here. You look great. I'm excited to speak with you. Um, if you could, Julie, tell us a little bit about your, your background and um, about your work and what led you to it. People already know that we're going to be talking about language and language provision. So mm-hmm. I would love, I, we would love to hear a little bit about your background.
1: Sure, sure. So um, my name is Julie Lee Merseth. I'm a political scientist. Um, I study race and immigration in American politics, a very calm, chill topic, (laughs) Um, arguably ever, but certainly right now there's a lot going on. Um, So I'm here to talk about uh, language access and voting rights. And um, what led me to this issue as a research topic is its its critical role in immigrant participation uh, politically, right? And more broadly, immigrant political incorporation. Um, And as a political scientist, of course, I'm very concerned with understanding the building blocks um, of democracy, of healthy democracy, and of course, ensuring that all American citizens, including not just the native born, but also the foreign born can participate fully in US elections uh, is clearly part of this. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. And I was so excited to, to read some of your work and I, I found you accidentally through Bernard Alfraga because you had work. Yes, because you you all had had worked together. So I, before we get into that a little bit, I want to touch on what is section 203 of the VRA, of the Voting Rights Act?
1: Right. So section two or three, 203 is where the VRA outlines how to gain language-based coverage for language minorities. Um, so it mandates that a jurisdiction provides in-language election assistance to a language minority group when certain population thresholds are met. Um, so for Asian Americans and Latinos, the population of voting age citizens has to be either 10,000 or more, or of the total population in that particular subdivision and subdivisions are are usually counties, right? And have an illiteracy rate that's higher than average compared with that of non-language minority individuals in that same subdivision. So in effect compared with English speakers in that same place. Um, It was uh, first introduced in 1975 uh, with the reauthorization then. um, So it was 10 years after the first uh, the IRA signed a law by LBJ. Um, the assistance it, it um, uh, prescribes is any written information, right? Or official documents that are provided to voters in English Um, as well as oral assistance, right, if requested, which is also covered by other parts of the VRA um, and for some Native American communities, Alaskan Native communities where the languages are uh, predominantly oral. And so what's important here is that it's not just, sometimes people think about this as just the ballots and it's not just the ballots, it's actually designed to, to uh, ensure language access to the entire process of voting. So um, this is not just ballots, but information in advance about election day, right? That the rest of us get um, in English, if we can understand that, um, as well as the information provided at the polls. So information about how to register, right? where to go, and importantly, the kinds of assistance that are available so that you can have poll workers there to help you understand uh, both the process and the information on the ballot. So um, me, trying to uh, think, I, yeah.
0: Oh no, I, I, I'm telling you, this is going to be the first time a lot of people have heard anything about this, mm-hmm. so do not worry about being verbose about this, <laughs> because yes. honestly, um, to me too, I like that you mentioned that it was 10 years, oh goodness, sorry, I don't know why that just happened. Okay, um, it, people don't realize that this happened 10 years after the VRA was introduced. Mm-hmm. So what was this? So what was happening before this um, provision was put into the VRA? What were some of the obstacles? And then what was the impact of it on voting rights, registration and
1: turnout for Asian and mm-hmm. Latino Americans? Mm-hmm. Right. So um, one of the things that I want to make sure underscore that I I realized I just missed is that coverage is determined based on population data that is related specifically to the number of what we call limited English proficient individuals. So we say LEP for short, limited English proficient. um, And What happened in 1975 was a recognition that there was discrimination against limited English proficient individuals. Um, And the idea here is that um, if we want, the kind of normative states here, right, is that if we want for a healthy functioning democracy, voters to be the most informed that they possibly can be, the most educated about candidates, about parties, about issues that they can possibly be, it's very important that we ensure each person casting a ballot has had equal access to that information. So if we have people who are saying are telling us that I don't speak English very well or, more or less, I speak English less than very well, then it is um, to the benefit of the entire <laughs> country, right, the, the democracy and our democratic institutions to make sure that everyone can uh, understand fully all of the necessary information. So if we don't do that, we can think about through a kind of lens or framework of discrimination. And in 1970 that's what was happening.
0: Okay. But then after, um, it was, um, introduced, how has it impacted registration? And, um, I still, obviously I'm going to want to know, uh, there are still obviously issues that, you know, so it didn't just fix everything, but right, I would like to know right. the
1: positive aspect of how <laughs> it impacted registration and turnout first. Yes, absolutely. Sorry. Things are popping up on my computer. So, um, as you mentioned, my co-author Bernard Fraga and I, we decided to weigh in on the question of the participatory impact of these provisions. Um, and what we found, well, let me let me kind of give a little context. The context here is that the the there are multiple dimensions to the debates around these around these provisions, right? And so, um, again, I kind of alluded to the normative implications, but there are also you know, this is essentially an issue of immigrant voting rights. And so there's a lot bound up with this idea of um, national identity, identity as an American, how English speaking ability factors into that, whether it should, how much it should, right? Um, And so there were those debates going on and still continue going on clearly about uh, whether or not, for example, if we have a naturalized citizen that is poised to vote in an election, why should we provide them language assistance materials? If they're American, they should be here and they should be proficient, they should be fluent, right? So there's that set of of debates and ongoing tensions. And then on the other side, what uh, Bernard and I were looking at was the kind of um, empirical, right, the empirical side, the evidence about whether or not these provisions are succeeding in doing what they were designed to do, right, Um, which is to increase electoral participation among these language minority groups. And so what we found is that, in fact, these provisions appeared to result in increased participation among both Latinx and Asian communities. In different ways, we tried to kind of tease out the process a little bit. So as you mentioned, thinking about registration and thinking about turnout, um, obviously related, but a little bit distinctly in our analysis. And we found um, a, a really quite large actually impact. So an increase in registration among the something like 14 mm-hmm. to 16 percentage points. Wow. And an increase in turnout among Asian American registered voters something like 15 to 18 percentage points. So these are really encouraging findings um, empirically because it suggests again that for both Latinx and Asian American voters the VRA mandated provisions appear to be working as they are meant to do. So that's the good news. Now I,
0: I'm curious because there, you kind of mentioned this push for assimilation, like American. Mm-hmm. You, you need to, and this is kind of the backlash. I could see that being even worse at this time in our country. Mm-hmm. But um, what what I'm curious is um, what are some of the obstacles that are still there? I mean, I think that this provision, obviously is wonderful, and as I said at the top of of this whole myathon was that what we're wanting is a more complete, robust democracy, and this clearly aids in that. But what are some of the barriers that you've seen that are still in place for eligible voters, even with this language provision?
1: Right, So, so this raises questions of compliance, right? So I will say this, so what we know about compliance with the mandated provisions is actually mostly positive from the studies that have been done. And all of these studies have limitations, right? So um, the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, um, various social scientists and political scientists have tried to look at compliance rates. And actually, the data show from what we have, right, that it's mostly a positive story, right, in the kind of 80s and 90s percentage of compliance. But we also have to acknowledge that every time we do these studies, there are um, there's a lot more that remains uh, to be unpacked. So, you know, what kind of assistance is being given? I mentioned earlier that there's a full range, right? So the studies that have been done haven't necessarily been able to get at the kind of fine grain detail of which types of assistance is being most reliably consistently provided to which populations in which places, right? Um, I'm sure there are partisan overlays. We know we know that voting rights has enormous partisan overlays. Um, and for which type of elections, right? For local elections, for federal elections. Um, so there's, there's, a, uh, there's a compliance story that needs to be further unpacked, I would argue. But the data that we have are encouraging and what they tell us is that people um, are, are understanding the intention of the VRA language provision. So that's at least some good news. Now, to your other point, so what I think I would underscore is how the language barrier obstacles compound other existing obstacles for these communities, right? Mm-hmm. So even if, even when there are um, the kinds of compliance evidence that we might see where, okay, yes, this particular uh, jurisdiction. We had we have decent evidence that they did post flyers in multiple languages. Right? They did have a they did have um, election assistance. Uh, I'm sorry, election information on their website that was translated. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, um, the communities that are being most impacted by these language provisions are also since the mid 20th century immigrant communities that we think about as immigrants of color, right? Mm-hmm. Immigrants that are racialized as being non-whites, people of color, racial minorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are, there's a kind of um, challenge or barrier, if you will, to the implementation of this language assistance. That's very related to uh, racial stereotypes, the racialization of these groups, whether or not, for example, these particular communities are worthy of our, Funding to ensure that they can vote right. whether or not. Um, so, for Asian Americans in particular, the racialized narratives around Asian communities in the United States and API communities more broadly is um, being un American, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, this idea of political apathy, of not caring about uh, US politics. And so, getting implementation to be expanded, to be consistent, to be reliable involves the other work on the ground of pushing against these stereotypes that contribute to an idea that these communities are not worthy of that kind of support. Um, right. So that is um, that is one of the things that um, I think is, uh, you know, that kind of relationship, that deep relationship between voting rights restrictions that we think about as, as race-based and these immigrant voting rights, right? Those things are inextricably linked at this point and arguably always were. Do you
0: see a movement to try to get rid of that provision? Have you seen that, or are you seeing more of a movement to strengthen it, expand it, and also make sure that it is compliant? Have you, which one have you might, maybe seen more over the last few years?
1: So I think um, that I think. You know, the, the the level of cynicism I feel in this current political moment kind of is, is minute to minute. So I'm going to go with the, the positive take right now, which is that what we have seen is mobilization on the ground from these immigrant communities, from these communities of color who are very aware of the stakes of being um, of ensuring that their community members can get to the polls and can cast a vote in an informed um, accessible way. Um, the one of the things that I know that we've seen is, for example, a focus on um, recruiting in language poll workers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's mm-hmm. been movement on this election to election. it's getting um, my my perception sort of anecdotally, is that it's getting more and more efficient and more effective. Um, mm-hmm. We're using social media. we're we're getting the word out. Um, Covid nineteen is providing a very strange environment to be trying to do this work as well. But I know, um, so I've seen efforts um, among community-based organizations to kind of say, okay, well, if our poll workers, um, conventionally, our older folks that rightly don't feel safe being out. Are there people in the community that feel like they could do this? And if you, and really um, valorizing the skill of being bilingual to be able to assist in this. So I think the movement on the ground uh, coming from communities impacted by this is um, cause for optimism. I think the flip side is that outside of those communities, there is. Probably I would, I would surmise less, um, less movement, perhaps in either direction, but certainly not a lot of movement necessarily that people standing up and making, as you mentioned, it's not an issue we hear about a lot. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people clanging pots and pans and saying this is something we should pay attention to. Um, If anything, This gets us into that kind of um, uncomfortable tension that we have in the United States around how we think about immigrants. And as you mentioned, immigrant assimilation and incorporation, that we have lots of folks that I think if we ask them, do you think that naturalized citizens should have access to vote? People would say, of course. I mean, we are, as they say, a nation of immigrants. Everyone feels warm and fuzzy. Everyone feels welcoming. If we say are you willing to dedicate a certain amount of resources to be allocated to ensuring that this happens? I think we'd probably see an about face for for a lot of our population, um, and so it's it's very much uh, an on the ground kind of mobilization. Um, uh, the hope is in the mobilization on the ground. No,
0: that's great, I, I, and I what you've given us today is gold, a wonderful resource. I just want you to say that. Uh, uh, one person said, hi, Julie. Another person said, I'm glad I'm watching because this stuff is stuff I don't even think about. Right, yeah. exactly. And then okay. thank you for this and this public service. So just want mm, you know that people are, are feel very positive. And <laughs> so you. I have just one last question for you. I saw that you wrote a book or writing a book. And if so, I would like to know at what stage because I would like people to get your book. Is this true? Mm, I yeah. saw that you were, okay, great. What?
1: Please tell me about that. Sure. I, I just realized too. I I don't want to I don't want to uh, not do my duty here. I want to make sure that I toss out these few statistics about AAPIs sure. because yes, because yes I, I'm, You know, I'm feeling like this is important. Um, oh, I yes. did want to mention too because I I think I was remiss in not um, underscoring this earlier that these language provisions um, are especially critical. For Asian American Pacific Islander communities. Um, and that the, so we can talk about the kind of normative implications and those debates. We can talk about the empirical evidence that we're trying to bring to bear. Um, and building on what I just talked about, the, the game being the grassroots mobilization on the ground, I just can't underscore enough how how real world and personal of an impact this has for Asian American communities. So more than one third, for people who don't know, right, more than one third of all AAPI are limited English proficient, right? So something like 34, 35%, that's, that's a ton. We have uh, for people who might not know as much about Asian American communities, but you know, um, but if you know anything, you probably have heard this, when we take that kind of large umbrella of AAPI, we want to make sure that we disaggregate that so we have a lot of variation within um, within the communities that we think about as AAPI. Um, so, um, the kind of, if you will, the subgroups or those ethnic national origin groups that are, um, that have particularly high numbers of, A- A- of uh, LEP individuals are Vietnamese, Korean, um, Chinese, Cambodian, and Hmong. But across the community, obviously, there are people that need uh, language support. Among all AAPI, again, if we combine Asian-Americans and Pacific Islanders, 57% are foreign-born. So this mm-hmm. population is the only, uh, what we think about is kind of racialized group, these large racialized groupings that is majority foreign-born, right? So when we think about immigration debates and immigrant voting rights, one of the things understandably and importantly that comes to mind are Latinx communities. Um, but as a population, they're actually majority native-born, right? And so Asian-Americans are really impacted by things like the um, language provisions. Um, Asian group alone is uh, 66% foreign-born. And then among all AAPI foreign-born, if we again are kind of aggregating together Asian-Americans and Pacific Islanders, which is this whole other kind of political political action. Um, 33% are naturalized citizens. So we have uh, a large foreign-born population. We have a population, again, contrary to assumption, that is increasingly seeking to become formal members of the polity. And again, if we disaggregate that for the Asian alone population, um, 38% are naturalized citizens. So um, just wanted to make sure I took the opportunity to underscore that for Asian communities, AAPI communities in the United States, this is much more than a kind of theoretical or academic Um, enterprise. It's, it's literally at the heart of, of increasing political influence, political um, power, political voice. And so I I do hope that people take it um, really, really seriously. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes, Thank you. No,
0: I am so glad you gave us this. (laughs) No, no. And we needed those statistics and we needed to hear that. So I thank you very much. And I will just say, we just got a couple minutes left. If you would like to tell us about your book project or your book, we'd love to hear it and how we can, how we can find you in your work too. I know you do um, usually a lot of panels, maybe not so much with COVID right now, but um, I would love for people to know more about you and your
1: work too. Sure. Sure. Yes. So I am writing a book that I, I hope as an academic, we always hope people read our books. <laughs> we joke there's gonna be like 20 people in a classroom, and all people So I appreciate that. Um, and what I am looking at is how immigration impacts. Uh, the kind of racial group-based terrain, as I talk about it, because I'm going to feel like it's a little jerky, but the kind of That's collective good. political terrain um, in the United States, if we think about, as I mentioned, these kinds of racialized groupings, I always tell people, like, after you look at election, you know, returns on the monitor, it always has these nice, distinct, and it's like, white, black, Latino, Asian, right? And it, it looks all neat and clean. And um, mm-hmm. and then we spend the rest of our, of our time together just unpacking that and breaking it apart, right? But there is this idea that when we think about the United States population demographically, we can kind of group people up in a way that makes sense. Right. Um, the tricky part is that um, for those of us who study the kinds of positioning of groups, Um, in our our country, in our society, we know that it's much more dynamic than that, right? It's much more, um, it's much more precarious in terms of the access of non-white groups to status and privilege and benefits in society. So I say all this to say that two out of those groups that we see on that nice neat slide, um, white, black, Latino, Asian, are what I call immigration based groups. So these are groups that obviously include lots of folks that were born in the United States, but the group quad group, Um, its presence in the United States, right, is the result of of migration. And so if we think about that, we start to look more at the populations within those groups, right, and the differences Mm -hmm. and how they understand um, race in the United States, racism, Mm -hmm. their relationship to these existing racialized groups. And what I'm trying to kind of unpack is, Not just that immigration matters because we know that quite well, right? We have loads Mm -hmm. of data now. I mean, we can, like I did, break it down between foreign born and native born, right? But um, how more precisely the mechanisms through which these groupings themselves are potentially unsettled, right? Mm -hmm. And what the consequences of that might be for, um, I mean, I'm a political scientist for, so American political processes and outcomes going forward, right? So if we think about um, you know, I think you and I had mentioned uh, briefly. You kind know, of the the Black Lives Matter protests going on on the ground. If we mm-hmm. think about the kinds of group based, race based, and racial group based mobilization that's happening, mm-hmm. um, the potential unsettling and the kind of what I call perpetual instability of these groupings mm-hmm. has consequences for how um, folks of color on the ground mobilizing themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, choose to do that work. Right? right. Um, and sometimes it gets, um, it gets buried for all sorts of understandable reasons. We want to talk mm-hmm. about these groups. Like it's something we can count on and that's something right. that everyone agrees on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we know, um, from lots of data that when we ask people what they think about even just whether or not the group exists, is Asian American a thing? You know, right. not everyone, not everyone who others perceive as Asian actually think that Asian Americans thing, right? And my suggestion is that that actually impacts, um, both in negative and potentially strategically positive ways, how we think about, um, our kind of collective political terrain.
0: Well, that sounds brilliant. And I can't wait to (laughs) read it. Does it, does it have a name yet? Your book project?
1: Um, yes. And hilariously right now I'm thinking, so immigration, uh, this is the funniest part of this whole thing because my mind is completely in voting rights. <laughs> what is the title? So I'm going to go look at my website and tell me what the title of the book is. Um, Immigration something, racial groups in the reordering of group politics. Immig- yeah, something. It's, it's, <laughs> it's okay. I, website. I,
0: I, I'm going to post your website so that people can Thanks, see I appreciate
1: it. that. Somewhere on there is the, the title of the book.
0: Okay. <laughs> that's excellent. I would that. You've been a joy to speak with. You've given us so much to think about. I could talk about language provisions for hours. Go I hope say, everyone you know,
1: is talking about it for hours. That's okay. I really,
0: I do think it's a conversation that, you know, people were just, they had no idea that was even part of the VRA. So I thank you so much. Um, I will post information about your website and your book. And um, and you're not really on social media. Because you're probably busy. I know. <laughs> I, be. I know. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay to I get the be. work done. No, okay. If you change your mind, let us know. You'll find me first, and then I'll I'll show I everybody. I will. I your will. Social media. Well, Julie, thank you so much. It, it, it's thank really you. Been wonderful. Absolutely, and um, and good luck with all of the rest of your work. And I hope to to speak and connect again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this special season of Obscene, election coverage and voter information.
1: This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines.